0: Return again, return to the land of your soul. Return again, return again, return to the land of your soul. Return to who you are, return to what you are. Return to where you are born and reborn again. hi Friends, wishing you an elo, continued elo, two weeks from Rosh Hashanah. Two weeks from Rosh Hashanah, um, an opportunity to continue to return. Remember that Teshuvah is to return. To return, actually, our full potentiality is already within us. We need not create ourselves anew. We can just return to that essence. So friends, we have a great topic today of the meaning to life. So let's start with a little poll here. Is there a meaning to life? Option number one, there is no purpose to life. It is all random, arbitrary. Eat, drink, and be merry. Option two, no idea, I struggle with this. Option three, there is a meaning to life, but it's different for all of us and we must search hard to find our own meaning. Or lastly, God gave us a meaning and we all share a common purpose. Okay, friends. Cast your vote. Cast your vote. Give you a few seconds here.
1: Okay, let's see our results. Okay, nobody here says no purpose
0: to life. Nobody here says no idea. 67% say there is a meaning to life, but different for all of us. We gotta struggle to find it. And 33% said God gave us a meaning and we all share a common purpose. Okay, so friends, here we go. Debate number 16, I believe, 16. One of the elementary yet mysterious dimensions of humanity is the desire to derive something called meaning from our existence. The exact nature of this term is nebulous. No less so is the answer to our puzzlement about why we are here at all. Surely, there must be a reason why we're all in this place, in the universe, given the opportunity to use our faculties to think, to breathe, and to dream, no? Life, the ultimate quandary, gives us a framework to search for something greater than the various mental, physical, neural, emotional, and philosophical pieces of ourselves that interact with each other within each of us, enabling us in turn to relate to the rest of the world as, and individuals as a whole. We can perceive the task that each of us has as being to strive for what is true and what is good. We strive not merely for an understanding of what we perceive as metaphysical, but also maybe even the first instance for an aspect of ourselves that approaches the realization of a worthwhile reality. Let us suggest three primary options in the debate about the purpose of life. Option one, there is no meaning to life. We are here randomly without any purpose at all. We should eat, drink and be merry. Life is therefore about the pursuit of pleasure and happiness if it is about anything at all. Option two, there is one purpose and we all share it, to recognize that the world is broken and needs us to repair it. Option three, each of us has our own unique purpose that we must discover and fulfill. Stephen Hawking argued that the human race is just a chemical scum on a moderate sized planet, orbiting around a very average star in the outer suburb of one among a billion galaxies. This is possible. John Gray, the philosopher, argued that human life has no more meaning than that of slime mold. Israeli historian, now read around the world, Yuval Noah Harari in Homeo Dose," concludes that looking back, humanity will turn out to be just a ripple within the cosmic data flow. Friends, when living is devoid of truth, virtue, and responsibility, the human being often falters and is in a state of confusion, perhaps because we are each faced with a perpetual challenge of balancing these three potential answers to the question about the meaning of life against each other. On one hand, we shouldn't only be attracted to what feels right and comfortable. We should also be attracted to that which in a healthy and generative fashion makes us uncomfortable. It is hard to live in a community where a significant percentage of the communal life doesn't work well for us. We cultivate humility by remembering the communities are not our family rooms, fashioned just as we wish. It's hard to leave our comfort zone and encounter people and ideologies outside of our immediate circle of familiarity. But by engaging in such encounters, we learn what it means to be human. It would not be a stretch to say that we must work to ensure that the experiences we have in life contain some meaning, whether subterranean or or, or overt. When we go out into the vast world, it will be these moments when that work is successful that actually matter. They touch us, they warm our souls, they spark inspiration, but perhaps even more so, we should strive for experiences that are transformative, challenging and enlightening even if they are, or perhaps more precisely, particularly if they are, difficult. Religion, philosophy, indeed any life ideology is empty of its meaning if it is derived only from purely transmutable elements, running from one stimulation to another, a, mo- a moving film, to a compelling book, to an emotional sermon. These are merely transitory experiences if our minds and hearts are closed in the process. Transformation will not chase after us, rather we must chase after self growth as if we are addicted to inspiration. Experiences of consequence help us grow as beings of integrity. Such experiences allow us to see each other more deeply as people filled with an enlightened perspective, help us connect more deeply as relational beings. And to be sure, for all the power that these moments contain, it is vital that we never settle for their mere occurrence. We must see ourselves as being obligated to fulfill these moments with purpose. In fact, the mitzvot categorized as ben adam Lamakon, between people and God, are viewed by the biblical prophets as being miss, as missing the mark if they are not imbued with purpose, with action, with improving the world. Shabbat is of little or no value if it does not serve as a springboard for the Jew to recall the creation story thereby being inspired to engage in further creation. It is of little to no value if it does not call to mind that we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt and therefore must treat others equitably. Well, hold on, you might be asking. Who could be against the idea that life itself has inherent meaning and that perhaps one need not strive for more? The solipsistic dimensions of such a possibility couldn't be so stacked against the intangible enormity of ultimate significance, right? I'm, of course, not against meaning. The eminent psychiatrist and social thinker, Viktor Frankl, was correct. In my view, that meaning is what enables us to survive the steepest challenges that life presents us. Ever more people today have the means to live, Frankl wrote in his book, The Unheard Cry for Meaning, Psychotherapy and Humanism but no meaning to live for. Just because somebody acquires ways to sustain a certain comfortable lifestyle doesn't mean that anything significant can stem from it without a particular notion of a joy to vivre, independent upon material gain. A certain amount of annuity sets in when life is devoid of an appreciation for every opportune experience not grasped. Tony Morrison, The great novelist and professor emeritus at Princeton University had articulated this line of thinking in a 2011 speech she gave to a group of college graduates at Rutgers University. She said, I urge you, please don't settle for happiness. It's not good enough. Of course, you deserve it. But if that is all you have in mind, happiness, I want to suggest to you that personal success devoid of meaningfulness, free of a steady commitment to social justice. That's more than a barren life. It is a trivial one. It's looking good instead of doing good. Indeed, this sentiment is what Frankel was aiming for in his seminal work, Man's Search for Meaning. Writing in the years after surviving and bearing witness to the horrors of the Shoah, Frankel took all his inner torment and projected his thoughts into a cogent social ethos. Frankl wrote, what man actually needs is not a tensionless state, but rather the striving and struggling for some goal worthy of him. What he needs is not the discharge of tension at any cost, but the call of a potential meaning waiting to be fulfilled by him. We are waging a constant war between the elements of our inner selves that cry out for unfettered, unbounded consequence. Some parts of us seek only to satiate the the material, while others look to more lofty realms for validation. Throughout the lamentably short time, each of us will be present in this universe. We should be willing to sacrifice, to cultivate virtue, and not merely wonder where we might find meaning. One should join a community, even if one feels it to be most meaningful to be alone. One should also spend time alone, even if one is only comfortable in a group. Only then can he or she appreciate what it means for the other to feel alone. One should speak up if one is an introvert, and one should step back if one is an alpha dominant individual who sucks up all the oxygen in the room. The purpose of life then isn't merely happiness or superficial significance. Life is too short and valuable for that. Meaning is cheap if the reality upon which each of us is built as an individual lacks a need to interact and improve the lives of others and a sense of moral foundation. We need to do so even when that work doesn't feel great or meaningful. Likewise, attaining a meaningful existence is unappreciated if done purely for its own sake. The tautology of meaning is meaningless. Without X or Y in your life presents us with a fool's errand, not to mention a fool's philosophy. We should never just resolve to quote unquote, find meaning, whatever that means anyways. Instead, with every fiber of our respective beings, we need to create deeper meaning to seek our spiritual relevance in both the Empyrean echelon of existence and in our day-to-day lives that we perceive as mundane. This dual focus on both heaven and earth is the mana that sustains our outer lives and our inner worlds. Friends, if we conclude that meaning is not enough, but that we also need purpose, then we can ask, what is the purpose of my life? The fundamental commitment of being a Jew is to answer the question, Ayeka, where are you? with hineni, here I am, affirming a sense of responsibility and obligation to the other. Different Jews feel different kinds of commitments. We can come together as one people, not because we share the same understanding about the origin and the nature of our obligations, but because as Jews, indeed as human beings, we all feel obligated towards one another and the world at large. There are many different sources that we can consider as leading to obligation. But the great majority can be grouped into one or more of the following categories. So friends, here what I'm suggesting is that a uniting force for all Jews is that we are obligated. We are obligated. And yet different Jews can root the source of obligation in different ways. Here we go. Traditional Jews. Obligation originates from the commands given at Har Sinai from an ultimate authority rather than from the self. Okay, that's one type of Jew. Another Jew, existential Jews. Obligation originates from an autonomous and voluntary affirmation of and subjection to Jewish laws and values. A third type, narrative Jews. Obligation originates from a sense of continuity with the faith and lives of Jewish ancestors. A fourth type of Jew, conscience Jews. Obligation emerges in the moment of encountering another's or a community's plight, a need for assistance, as well as from moral and spiritual intuition. A fifth type of Jew, gratitude Jews. Obligation stems from recognition of and gratitude for the gifts that have been provided in one's life. A sixth type of Jew, consequentialist Jew obligation results from the compulsion to ensure that the proper outcomes are achieved from one's actions. And seventh, as a seventh archetype, but not conclusive, social contract views. Obligation comes from a sense of collective responsibility that binds us together and from affirming mutual obligation. So friends, what I'm striving to do here is adopt a new uh, uh, model of Jewish religious pluralism, cultural pluralism, that says Let's at the very base, at the very foundation, agree we part of our meaning of life is that we are obligated to the other. We are obligated to the other. And we can all agree on that secular, reform, conservative, orthodox, whatever we are, right? That we are obligated, even if our source of obligation comes from somewhere else. Of course, there are alternative ways to think about why we feel obligated to live as we do. One might simply live by social conformity or by national law, or according to desire, or by rejecting the notion of obligation altogether. These possibilities might be real, but seem to me to be departures from a Jewish approach to living intentionally and to feeling charged to improve the self and the world. Many put each other into boxes based upon the perceived origin of the other's commitments. But we must recognize that there are many entry points into Jewish obligation. We should move to a more inclusive and pluralistic paradigm in which even if we differ on the origin and nature of our commitments, we unite around our common sense of obligation. It is this ethical and spiritual impulse that we are called upon and that we are responsible for as a fundamental part of being a human being, still more particularly of being a Jew. In the modern era, Jews have expressed their sense of obligation in different ways. Theodor Herzl, the founder of modern Zionism spent the last 10 years of his life in an unceasing quest to find a homeland for the Jewish people. After pursuing his later later in life dream for years, he wrote, it goes without saying that the Jewish people can have no other goal than Palestine and that whatever the fate of the proposition may be, our attitude toward the, the land of our fathers is and should remain unchangeable. Leon Fuschwanger, who grew up in an Orthodox family, expressed his sense of obligation through his novels. In the Obermanns, first published in 1933, Fuschwanger wrote a chillingly accurate prediction of what would happen to Germany's Jews based on only the first year of Nazi rule. One of the protagonists, Gustav Obermann, a retailer of cheap furniture, has admittedly become indifferent to his contemporary society. However, as the political situation worsens, he feels uneasy and dictates a card to himself with the paraphrase of Avot. It is upon us to begin the work. It is not upon us to complete it. Gustav at first flees from Germany, but eventually, like Fuschwanger, realizes that his obligation is to document the Nazi atrocities, to alert the world about this danger. Elie Wiesel, through his experience in a concentration camp, devoted his life to educating the world about the Shoah and to work toward preventing future instances of genocide. His words ring with Jewish values. Our obligation is to give meaning to life. And in doing so, to overcome the passive indifferent life. Right At first, we were saying the meaning of life is obligation. And now Wiesel has flipped it. Our obligation is to give meaning. Albert Einstein was one of the most noted scientists in the 20th century, but he was also noted for his humanistic philosophy, which often expressed Jewish values. His attitude toward obligation fits in well with this tradition. Many times a day, he wrote, I realize how much my own outer and inner life is built upon the labors of my fellow men, both living and dead, and how, er- how earnestly I must exert myself in order to give in return as much as I have received. In the religious sphere, Many leading rabbis have become involved in modern social justice movements. Avraham Yehoshua Heschel, who famously marched with Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. for civil rights, expressed his moral obligation this way. There is no limit to the concern one must feel for the suffering of human beings, that indifference to evil is worse than evil itself, that in a free society, some are guilty, but all are responsible. Conservative Rabbi Jill Jacobs of Truah, believes that Jews can work effectively for social justice within their congregation and other Jewish institutions. She wrote, the Jewish obligation for social justice stems from four sources, the historical experience, the legal imperative, a vision of the world to come, and practical considerations about the place of Jews in a diverse society. These four sources should inspire Jews to do social justice work, not only as individuals, but also within the specific context of Jewish communal institutions. In the political realm, the life of Senator Frank Lautenberg of New Jersey suggests another view of obligation. He, Senator Lautenberg who grew up in a working class neighborhood in Patterson, New Jersey served in the armed forces in World War II and later launched a very successful business, Automatic Data Processing. Unlike many other management figures, Lautenberg was known for treating his employees with dignity and the company thus thrived. In the Senate, he was responsible for laws regulating smoking and alcohol, as well as gun control. And he gained key support for his negotiating skills that won a great deal of revenue for public transportation projects. In spite of this, he always had time to meet with constituents and would frequently speak to people he had just met for 10 minutes or about their concerns. In other words, he never forgot his roots. Shortly after his before his death, he confided to his rabbi, Dan Cohen of Temple. Shari Tefila Israel of South Orange, how he wanted to be eulogized. He wanted to be remembered as a man from humble beginnings who did good and then used those opportunities provided to him to do the same for others. He understood that his success was due to his community support and government policies of the New Deal era. And he worked for the rest of his life to ensure that others would have the opportunity to succeed as well. President Joe Biden, some argue, exemplifies similar values today. Even Jews who convert to other religions often display a sense of obligation consistent with Jewish values. Simone Weil, who grew up in a secular Jewish home in France, had a philosophical trip through socialism and anarchism before converting to Christian mysticism. In the years before her early death, she focused her attention on the tremendous suffering of people during World War II. It is an eternal obligation toward the human being not to let him suffer from hunger when one has a chance of coming to his assistance. It's hard to not think of the the girls, the women, the men in Afghanistan right now, in Kabul. Another secular Jewish phenomenon was that exemplified by the red diaper babies of the baby boomer generation. These were the children of Jewish parents, many in Brooklyn who had been communists during the Great Depression and World War II, when the party was virtually the only political faction working for racial, civil rights, unionization for unskilled workers, and opposition to fascism worldwide. Many of these children later took part in the civil rights and anti-Vietnam War movements and also connected back to their Jewish roots. We all exist with this breach, this sacred covenant of obligation and shared responsibility. Biblically, the Brit was articulated in multiple contexts, For all people at the time of the flood, but more intensely for Jews and the mutual divine human commitments surrounding the initial encounters between Abraham and God, the experience of the Exodus and Sinai revelation. A covenant can be understood religiously, existentially, legally, and emotionally, socially, but all of these origins and viewpoints share a commitment to what ought to be and not just to what is. We are not merely a descriptive, but also a prescriptive people. To be Jewish means that I must do. Judaism is oriented to value, which allows us to define the future that we commit to creating. To be a Jew means much more than being fact-oriented, which simply tells the story of our past and describes our present. So friends, to conclude here, the foundation of our pluralism and our shared commitment to function creatively in the world can be in our embrace of a dream of a more redeemed self and a more fulfilled world. The multiplicity of narratives about our commitments need not and dare not inhibit, quite the contrary. It can and should enhance our ability to create partnership and to thrive together. So where are we given meaning? Is there a meaning to our life? That is a question now that I wanna throw back to you. Please don't be shy. Okay, I won't be shy.
1: Right. Uh, um, I obviously those uh, purposes of of the obligations that you listed, I would say that for the most part, most of us are a combination of several of them. I mean, we might approach with a main one, but for the most part, you know, we are a combination. We might so, so it's hard, I mean, I, I really admire you for dividing them up like you did, but um, I, I think most of us are a mixture, a mixture. Yes. And, yes. and then the, the other thing that you just brought up towards the end is that I, I, I know for a while in the 80s and 90s, they talked, especially on campus, you know, in um, I'm, I'm pretty involved in Hillel, but they always talked about doing Jewish not being Jewish. I mean, they always talk about let's do Jewish, let's do this, let's do that. So, I mean, it's the first time I'd heard that in a long time, but uh, I appreciate yes. that that reference.
0: So amazing, thank you. Awesome, Cheryl, thank you. Yeah, a bunch of things there. Um, one is that I think one of the reasons that Hillel did that, and, and I think that was Richard Joel, I was on the international board of Hillel with Richard Joel when I think he introduced this. And I think that, um, the idea was to shift our community from identity in some ways to action. Mm-hmm. And that being a source of pluralism. If I'm reform, I'm gonna go into the reform minion room and sit at the reform Shabbat dinner table. And if I'm Orthodox, I'm gonna to go to the Orthodox Minion yeah. or conservative, I then go to my table with my friends. He said, but if it's not about identity of our labels, it's about doing this. Then we can all unite on the fact that we're doing it. Yeah, we're doing it differently, but we're doing it. And that's really cool, right? That we're just, we're not um, these labels here in this Zoom room right now, we're all doing Jewish learning right now. And that unites us. And I think Cheryl's totally right that those categories I I created around um, where our obligation stems from, we are very different in different moments. I mean, when I look at, when I go on to a website this morning and donate to women in Afghanistan, I'm not going on there, you know, based on some, you know, Bible verse I read this morning that reminded me to do it. It was just a call of conscience. It's a call of empathy. It's just a human dimension, right? But maybe, maybe later today, I'm going to be, you know, praying Mincha and I'm going to feel obligated from the prayer and the prayer is going to tell me to go do something good. And so at different moments, our obligation comes from God. It comes from our history. It comes from our conscience. And, and I think Cheryl's totally right that we can never be one of those. We're, we're, we're all of those. Um, just just one other thought, building off here, which is that um, you know that I think one way to understand religion, and let me be clear, it's only one way, because I think you could make the opposite argument as well, is that religion is about changing our nature. And when I say you could say the the opposite argument, it could be embracing our nature or returning to our nature but let me first make the case for changing our nature. I think our nature is a scientific phenomenon fundamentally. Yes, there's a soul dimension to it, but on the, on the, on the physical nature level, the nature of the world, those people I quoted at first, right? Um, Stephen Hawking and Yuval Noah Harari and John Gray, there's no meaning to life. It's all arbitrary. I think that science points in that direction. There's no real proof of God. There's no real proof of a meaning to life. There's no real proof that humans have any sig- cosmic significance whatsoever. And because I think our human nature is towards, in many ways, towards self-satisfaction. I think throughout the day, we are driven to fulfill ourselves. Pleasure, ego, recognition, a sense of fulfillment, constantly seeking food, seeking pleasure, seeking, seeking to fulfill our our, our wishes. And as such, religion enters in, Torah enters in, and says, no, no, you're not just an animal. I don't mean to denigrate animals, but the animalistic (laughs) sense of humans. You're not just here to fulfill yourself, right? There is a calling, and you need to change that nature that tells you there's no meaning other than self-fulfillment, right? And that, I think, is the work of Teshuvah. That is, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur is not about a beautiful, a beautiful sermon. It's not about a, 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 a great chorus and a, a wonderful cantor. It's not about seeing your friend. It's not about the apples and honey. I mean, it's about all those things, right? But but fundamentally, it's about, right, living by our better angels, right? And that itself is almost a protest against the question, um, does life have meaning? It's almost a protest because we're saying our body is pushing us towards no meaning. Our body is just pushing. And Yom Kippur is the great protest. It says, forget it. No food, no sex, no washing yourself, no anointing yourself. Nothing that's going to make you feel good, right? Become angelic. What does it what does it look like to live a day where you're not chasing your desires, right? Where you're actually cultivating a self that is rejecting a day where all you want is your next bite of food. All you want is your next nap. All you want is your next like like buzz from social media that somebody saw you, right? So okay. Anyways, there's my little uh, <laughs> my little rant based on uh, on uh, on the meaning of life. Cheryl, thank you for that. That's a great point.
2: Um, I have a few points. Um, right. I really really like your the way you divided the Jews. Like, what kind of Jews we are, and I agree with Cheryl. We're a combo. Um, And I think it's like the bottom line is, Ko Israel, Aravim Zelazeh, right? We're we're all, all Jews are responsible for for each other. Um, What what I wanted to just reply to what you said about science because I don't think it necessarily has to lead to a hedonistic, meaningless life, you know, with no God. I I think certainly (coughs) as, as, as I learned therapy and, you know, physiology and everything, it, it becomes awe-inspiring, like what, what the body does, like that it actually works and how it heals itself and how we learn to heal. So I guess if you have a sense of yira and, and that it comes from from a creator, then I think it gives you a different sense. I can imagine, yeah, if you have like no belief in anything, it could lead to a meaningless hedonistic way of life, but oh, my God, that would be such a sad life.
0: Yeah, amazing. Okay, so, so, so two things there. Thank you so much, Lauren. Firstly, um, I, 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 I think that um, science is a part of religious truth. I really believe that God reveals truth in the world through scientific findings. Right, and so science is not at odds with religion, but but part and parcel of 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 the of continuous revelation. When we find a new vaccine, when we discover new medical technologies, when we understand the universe more deeply, this is a part of 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 revelation, if you will. And so, I my protest against science is most definitely not science itself, but it is science. It is when one constructs the entirety of their worldview by science alone, um, that science is only one of the many tools that ought to inform a holistic worldview. And I know people today who reject science in their worldview, this is very scary. And I know people also who make science primary in their worldview, and I think this is also very scary. Um, And I think that the authentic Jewish approach is to be engaged with it, to embrace it, and then to have an ethical dimension and a spiritual dimension which complements the scientific dimension. So that's the first bit there. And I think someone like Stephen Hawking is completely blinded by only being able to exist um, within a scientific worldview. Um, So that's the first thing. The second thing is I love that you brought us to Yira because what Yira does is it reminds us that, that the search for meaning in life is not about an answer. It's not even about a question. It's about an emotional attunement. A question is still intellectual, just like an answer is to some degree. But yira is a way of life. It is a way of living with awe, right? And that is a beautiful way, Lauren, to live with the question of what is the meaning of life? That actually the way I live with the question of meaning of life is with a sense of wonder an amazement, radical amazement, a sense of awe for that question itself, right? And I think that we should reject both extremes. The religious fundamentalist who says, here is your meaning. I'm going to tell you what you need to do right now. Here is your meaning. And also the scientific fundamentalist who says, there is no meaning whatsoever, right? But rather to live in the process of yiraq, to live in the process with deep awe and that awe-inspiring obligation and connection and commitment. So yeah, Lauren, thank you for that.
3: Rabbi, I've got a question. I like to get more from a personal perspective. Uh, You know, I thought you did a great job articulating the different kind of uh, categories of Jews. Um, What I like to get is your perspective on have there been things in your life, life cycle events, whether they're big or even the littlest things, uh, the day-to-day things that you have found to help you see your interpretation of the meaning of life evolved? Has there been things that you've seen that have given you more clarity or might have just given you more confusion as to your understanding to that idea of Because you gave a good answer of what the meaning of life is, but have there been things that kind of made you struggle or gave you more clarity? Uh, I'd like to hear your perspective on that.
0: Thank you so much. Well, I know this answer might seem overly obvious, so I'll push myself to give another one after the first one. But um, the greatest uh, blessing and curse in any practicing rabbi's life is you're probably ready to fill in the blank already is death in the community um now i don't mean blessing in any way to imply that, that that those deaths are in any way good but the curse is obvious obviously because of the sadness the loss the pain involved but on a just a personal uh on a on a personal selfish level i mean i don't i don't mean to be critical of rabbis but it completely throws your workflow off. I mean, you can't, everything in your life drops when someone in your community dies. You have to cancel all your meetings, you have to cancel your vacation, you cancel everything to, to be present in this. And so the curse of death uh, is, is just, um, is completely uh, overwhelming. Uh, however, the the reason I call the, the, that, that work experience a blessing is because it is such a gift to be entrusted with such a role in a family's life to be present with them in that kind of way and to be given the opportunity to stand graveside um, consistently uh, and reflect on the meaning of life. People who don't do that often are often very overwhelmed by funerals um, or by passing, as if it's some rare anomaly. Oh my goodness, some tragedy happened, death never happens, and look, there was a death. But what, what if, you're, if you're someone who works in hospitals where death happens often, or you work in, as clergy where you're a, a part of that, it's completely unsurprising, completely unsurprising when someone dies and you're a part of that journey. And so standing graveside consistently um, is such a radical reawakening to the questions of the meaning of life um, with deep urgency, because you can no longer live with the the naivete of, I'm guaranteed a long life. I'm young, or I'm youngish. And um, it's not my time. And you start to realize the shortness of our time and the urgency of embracing each day to actualize our potential. And so that's the first thing I want to say. And it might seem obvious. but I really am profoundly moved every time I'm a part of a journey like that. Um, and yet, uh, in some ways today, we constantly see death on social media. And we're used to saying, I'm so sorry. I'm sorry to hear this. Or send out our condolences, but not really feeling it or seeing it on the news, the COVID numbers, um, you know, other atrocities in the world, uh, and not feel it. But when we really encounter death, I think it's, it's very, very profound. So that's the first thing I would say. And I think the second thing I would say is that um, one of the things we struggle with here is how do we get people who aren't interested in learning, interested in learning? And that's not just an organizational question we have. Oh, like you just like to watch movies. You don't like to like learn new things, you know, Um, not that you can't learn from movies, of course. But I mean, like, you don't want to be a part of a tech study or a book group or like a lecture. You know, you want entertainment, essentially. Um, uh, How do we get get people like that to actually care about learning? That's a really, that's an organizational question, but it's not a pedagogical question, but it's also a spiritual question. How do we shift a child or an adult from a fixed mindset to one of a growth mindset? One that actually we can evolve and change and learn. And so that question about the meaning of life, I think many people have, have, have uh, feel very lazy around this orientation. They read something when they were a teenager. They gave themselves an answer when they were 25 or 35. And they just kind of live by that. They don't continue to learn and think and engage with it. And so that is kind of on the more challenging side of how do we kind of shake things up that people are actually searchers of truth, seekers of truth. People are actually on a quest for meaning, as opposed to, again, just a life of hedonism. And here too, I want to break down the binary because there are people who live as total hedonists. There are people who live as total seekers, but most live in between. Most live a life chasing desire and a life chasing meaning. And that's just fine. That's human. And so I think those are my first two answers. Over coffee, I could share many more, but I think the engagement with death and the engagement of the process of how do we cultivate a community of seekers?
4: Um, I think one question too is, when we say meaning of life, meaning of what to who and to what, I almost see like each of us, I can almost say like an onion, we're in the center. You know, the first layers, you know, is, is our food or our basics. The next layer probably is our family. Then we go wider and wider and everyone's onions a little different. The different layers, our community may be a thick layer for some of us, something like that. Then it goes beyond till we reach the point of the universe. Do we have any meaning in the universe? And I think that for each of us, where where meaning what we mean by meaning at what level and how we approach it. Because everything can't be equally meaningful to everyone.
0: Yeah, Mike makes a great point on on a number of levels. And here, I think this moves us also to the problem with the only dimension of this question through the scientific realm. Why is that? Because one of the problems with a scientific worldview, when it is the only worldview, is that it looks at the whole and not the parts. In many cases, if you look at the whole and the cosmos, and you say, what does the galaxy care about Shmuley Yanklowitz? What does the galaxy care about Ozzy, my dog? I mean, we can leave my dog out of it. What does the galaxy care about Abdullah in Kabul? Right? What does the galaxy care about this new child born? It doesn't care. That in, in 500 years, that person will have died. Everyone will have forgot them. Nothing will have more or less changed. So if you zoom out to the whole, there is no meaning. But if you look at the parts, you look at the self, you look at the family, you look at the community, you look at the different layers of meaning that exist on different levels. On each of those layers, you start to see something. The other part is on the scientific realm, you only look at the prolonged sense of time. Was my life meaningful if I look back 800 years from now? Well, maybe not, but what if I look at right now? What if I look at tomorrow? Right, is it meaningful? And why should today not matter in the scheme of 10,000 years? Today also matters. If, 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 if 8,000 years from now matters, then why doesn't today matter? So I'm like, thank you for that. Thank you for that.
3: Thank you, Rabbi Shmueli. I, I think this also reminds me of of the coins that you, you gave me. Um, and it helps me remind myself of, of when I'm looking at meaning of like how to humble myself, but I'll, how to also accept the meaning. Uh, It reminds myself that I am dust and ashes, but also that the world was created for me and and really trying to hone in that, that meaning in, in whatever work aspect I'm looking at.
4: Amazing.
0: Amazing. Love that. I love, yeah. You know, Eddie, that that's, that's really awesome to bring that in this idea that we can live with this duality that, you know, Eddie's referring to this teaching. We've all heard many times of the note in one pocket, your dust and ashes, the note in the other pocket that the world was created for you. And I think that actually um, living with both answers here can be really powerful to say, you know what? I, I partially embrace the, sci- the scientific notion. Like, yeah, there's no proof to my meaning. I'm nothing, I'm going to be nothing. And actually having that as a virtue of humility, like who am I? I'm nothing, what do, like, what, what do I need covered for? What do I need all the glory for? And that is a virtuous worldview when it exists alongside the other worldview of, I really do matter. And I matter, because if I don't matter, then the other person doesn't matter. Why should I fight for someone else's dignity if I don't believe the human has, 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 has dignity? And if I decided they do, then so do I. And so I matter, but I, that can carry me into ego and self-indulgence. So I got to go to the other note now, back to I'm nothing. And so the religious worldview infused with meaning and the scientific worldview, again, not a binary, um, that we're we're essentially nothing in the cosmos, can live together, can live together. And I think that the meditation upon our own death can do that as well. Our own death can remind us that we're nothing. And our own death can give us an urgency to cultivate a legacy of what we want to achieve in in this life. Okay, Rabbi Biller, last comment here.
5: Okay, so first of all, thank you for putting this together. Um, a quick comment on the funerals and on science, and then, and then the thing I actually wanted to bring up. So, you know, as a pulpit rabbi and doing funerals, I, I'm over and over, I hear children making speeches about how their parents impacted them. And so over and over, I'm left with, oh, wow, I wonder, you know, what am I doing and how will my children see me? So it's like constantly calling me to reevaluate how I am as a parent, how I am as a human being. So that's, that's one the science thing that Lauren mentioned—it hit me. Like, whatever you are, the science study will make you more. Like, if you have no big beliefs, and the science will verify for you, oh, it's just you know a bunch of facts and chemicals. If you're coming at it with spiritual belief, the science study enhances those beliefs. I so thought that was kind of interesting. Anyway, what, so what I wanted to ask you—I've never heard the connection made between purpose and obligation and i really like that a lot like how you laid that out so so then i think okay if you have people who don't have any sense of obligation they're just alive is there a way to have purpose without having a sense of obligation Mm -hmm. can that
0: coexist beautiful beautiful so um this is this is really profound and one way i would think about this just briefly is um, the depression that can be found in deep isolation um, and in paralyzed isolation. Imagine someone relatively end of life, um, isolated in a, in a very uh, painful medical situation without much hope. How could someone cultivate a desire to keep on living in a moment where they essentially have no outlets to fulfill obligations? They have no means to engage in anything financial or relational, um, or to have any mobility. And um, here, the easy answer could be, you fulfill your obligations, there's nothing else you really can do, you're ready to die and prepare for death. An alternative can be to find meaning, not in the realm of doing, but in the realm of being because the realm of obligation is still within the realm of doing. And if someone were in a bed and they tapped into being, the soul power, if you will, then the, the purpose exists not in the realm of fulfilling obligation, which we can do in, the, in some of the best years of our life where we're, we have privilege to do so. But, but then we can tap into the sense of, my purpose is not in what I do, but what I am. In tapping into the soul, I can connect to a channel of relationship and that relationship itself within me imminently and beyond me transcendentally can itself be a, be a form of purpose just to be, just to be, and that can be the work that we have to do ourselves as we lose mobility in our lives, as we're aging, is to move in some ways from more productive doing to deeper being. So friends, with that, I wish you all a continued meaningful LOL, that we seek our meaning in our lives and each day try to actualize this meaning, but not just actualize the meaning philosophically, but do it in a way that enhances our lives and those around us. It is so great to be with you all, and I hope to see you next week, because next week is not just any ordinary week. <laughs> next week, if you've thought about next week at all yet, next week, friends, is debate number 17. What is greater, learning or action? What is greater, learning or action? A great Talmudic debate. See you then.